This is the seventh lesson in a series on God give us Christian homes. We have looked at four lessons from great passages from the Old Testament talking about our homes. Last week we looked at some great New Testament truths that were revealed in some very valuable passages. This is the lesson that I was not looking forward to. I don't like dealing with difficulties. I don't like dealing with failures. And I don't like talking about divorces. But this is a biblical topic, and it does need to be discussed. You realize that this is one of the saddest events that can happen in any family. When divorce occurs, it can even have a more profound effect on a family than even a death. Because when someone loses someone to death, there's the sadness that goes along with it. There is the loss that goes along with it. But you don't feel that loss of love. And yet in a family where divorce occurs, whether it is the husband, the wife, or perhaps both, and some degree the children, there's a question of whether or not love is there and if it is present Practically every family has been touched by divorce. It's been within those of my own family, and I am sure it has likely been those of your family. It's not something pleasant to go through. It's not something that is easy to deal with, but it is a reality that we have to address. How we respond can potentially affect where we will spend eternity. If I do the wrong thing and I act in a wrong way and I do not respond properly, God will hold me accountable. Here's what I would like for us to do as we study our lesson this morning. Number one, I want to talk about the perspective of God. How does God see things? You know, last week Central had a great gospel meeting with Brother Barry Kennedy and the theme of the lessons that he delivered was seeing things as God sees them. And it was a great lesson that I heard on Monday night. But then I want to address the problems of man. How man seeks to try to find some loophole or some dodge around God's teaching on the subject. And then number three, perhaps the most encouraging part is preventative measures. How can you and I avoid a divorce in our family? What are some things that we can do? Let's begin, first of all, on God's perspective. We as the children of God need to look and see how God sees things. Quite frequently, when we are in a discussion with someone, we want them to understand how we think about it. And God wants us, His children, to see things like He sees them. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, you'll remember when there was a choice who was going to be the king to follow Saul. It was going to be one of the sons of Jesse. And as Samuel is going person by person of the sons, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. There's the key phrase. The Lord does not see as man sees. Too often we look on things superficially. We only look at what is on the top, but God sees the full picture. 
and he knows. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have to acknowledge the fact that most of us only see a small portion of the way things really are. God not only sees what is superficial, but God sees everything. He even sees the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so we must recognize God sees much more than we do. But if I want to know God's perspective, the only way for me to know that is to consult His Word. That means that you and I have to open our Bibles, we have to look, we have to try to find how God thinks on various positions. And on this case, I don't have to worry. I know how God feels on the subject of divorce. We studied the book of Malachi a few weeks ago from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 16 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. For it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I would say that most of the people who have endured a divorce would say they hate divorce. Because of all the sadness and the heartache that it brings. But someone says, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament hated it, but the God of the New Testament, it's all right. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. I do not change. If God hated divorce then, He hates it now. But you see, the truth was, in the first century, divorce was prevalent. In fact, I suggest to you divorce has been prevalent for many, many ages. You can see it in the book of Deuteronomy. You can see it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and as well as the book of Malachi. You can see it in the life of Hosea and his wife Gomer. And we can see it in the first century as well. What I'm going to do, I want to go through about three or four passages with you. We're going to pause as we go through them. But I want you to open your Bibles. I want you to follow along with me, if you will. We're going to go back to Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. And then we'll go to chapter 19. But let's look at these passages. Let's see if we can understand what the Lord is saying. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except fornication causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries the woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now for just a moment, pause with me. You remember we studied last week about the great sermon on the mount and what the Lord taught about righteousness. You go back to chapter 5 verse 20. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What the Lord was trying to do was to try to persuade the people, I'm calling on you to live a more godly, a more spiritual life than your religious leaders of that day. 
what Jesus was trying to do was to get people to see how the people had taken the Old Testament making it say one thing when in reality it said something else. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Where'd that idea of certificate come from? It came from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. The children of Israel had abused it. We're going to look and we get to chapter 19 of what brought that on. But Jesus said, you've heard, just give them a certificate. That'll make it all right. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except fornication. What do you mean, Lord, by that? What if you divorce your wife because she's not as pretty as she used to be? It's not acceptable. What if you divorce your wife because you don't like her cooking? That's not acceptable. What if you divorce your wife because you found someone that you like better than her? That's not acceptable. The Lord said, for any reason except fornication, He said, causes her to commit adultery. That brings up a question. Why, how would that cause her to commit adultery? Because women were often dependent upon the men for their livelihood. And you take a woman, you put her away, and then she becomes another man's wife. And that is implied because it says, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You see, the Lord said there's just one reason, one and only one reason, for which you can put your spouse away and marry someone else, and that is for fornication. Anything else causes adultery to happen. And adultery is where you have two wives, two husbands. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. We don't have time to explore that one, but... I want you to see the Lord is calling on the people here in this great Sermon on the Mount for them to have a greater respect for God's intent and God's law. But now turn with me to Matthew 19. This is the fuller passage, if you will. Matthew chapter 19. Let's pick up with verse 3. The Pharisees also came testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause or for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Now we're going to pause at this point for just a moment. The Pharisees came. They came testing him. The idea of testing our Lord was frequent among them. They wanted to see if they could trip him up, get him to say something that would alienate one portion of the people. There were two rabbis who had spoken out very vocally on the subject of divorce. Their name was Shammai and Hillel. Rabbi Shammai says this. Rabbi Hillel says this. And so they come to the Lord testing him, trying to put him on the spot and see which rabbi he was going to follow and thereby creating controversy for those 
that he didn't follow. But the Lord was much wiser than they. And rather than saying, well, the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel or the rabbi this, the rabbi, the Lord didn't say that at all. The Lord went all the way back to the beginning. Have you not read? Now, let me tell you the value of that point. Someone may say, well, you know, what does the Bible teach on marriage and divorce? Well, let's call Tony and see what Tony has to say. That's not going to work. I'm not the authority. Well, let's open up one of these good question and answer books. Let's consult this person or that. That won't work either. Because you don't go to a rabbi, you don't go to a teacher, you don't go to anywhere other than, because this point is, what is God's perspective? Not what's my perspective. Not what's one of your favorite teacher's perspectives. What does God say on the subject? And here's what Jesus said. Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? I know immediately that marriage is in between a man and a woman. This concept that's been cooked up in our country recently that a man can marry a man or a woman can marry a woman is so foreign to the teaching of Scripture as to be an abomination in God's sight. That he who made the male and the female and said, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they too shall become one flesh. I've heard it expressed, you leave, you cleave, and you weave. The idea that a person is married, they hold closely to that new spouse and then they weave their lives together. But as you keep reading in the text, so when they were no longer, they are no longer two, but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses... Because of the hardness of your heart permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for fornication and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries who is divorced commits adultery. Now I want you to notice the latter part of verse 6. What God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man. That would include any judge who presides over any court in any country in this world. They have no right. They have no authority before God to do that. Oh yes, a judge can... Bang that gavel and say, yes, your divorce has been granted. Doesn't mean that God's granted one. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That also, by the way, includes the husband and the wife. Well, they said to him, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Why did he do that? Jesus explains why he did that. 
Because of the hardness of your hearts. You know what hardness of heart is? Is when you become stubborn. And you start doing things your way. And Deuteronomy 24, they were taking and they were marrying, they were divorcing, they were going somebody else's spouse and they were turning around and coming back and becoming that person's spouse again. And he says, is not the land greatly polluted because of... This is something that's not... God wanted them to stop this wholesale divorce and so he said, you've got to issue a certificate, is what Moses said. It was to try to regulate them from being just so wildly ungodly. But Jesus explains further in the latter part of verse 8, but from the beginning it was not so. This was not God's will. This was not God's intent. If I'm going to see things the way God sees them, God never wanted this to happen. Then Jesus follows it with the exact same principle he set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. God's plan is is that you stay married, and that you stay married, and that the only reason why you can be able to divorce and marry someone else is if that spouse has committed fornication. Now, a practical illustration of this principle. If you go with me now to Mark chapter 6, There's John the Baptist, there's Herod, and Herodias. And we learn that Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. You think about that for just a second. Here's Herod. And John the Baptist is looking at him and saying, The woman you have is your wife? It's not lawful for you to have her. We might ask the question, by whose law? By God's law. That's the only law John the Baptist is concerned with. By God's law, it's not permitted for you to have her. She is your brother Philip's wife. But secular history records that Herodias had divorced Philip. We learn from Mark, Herod had married her. John the Baptist was beheaded because he taught the truth. Now, Paul stated it very simply in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. I don't think you have to have a whole lot of help to understand this one. It's so plainly stated. Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or let be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother or sister who does not believe and has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. I want you to notice the principle set forth. Look at the latter part 
of verse 11. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. Look at the latter part of verse 12. Let him not divorce her. Look at the latter part of verse 13. Let her not divorce him. I don't think that takes a whole lot of explanation. God's idea was, I want the home to remain together. Husband and wife. Now that leads me to the second part of our lesson. That is the problems brought by man. And the first thing I'm going to point out to you, you can say, boy, the way you just presented it, it's pretty strict. Let me direct your attention back to Matthew 19 and verse 10 and the response of the disciples after they heard what Jesus said. The disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Yeah, that's right. If you are not willing to be committed to that man or to that woman for the rest of your life, here's the response. Don't get married. You need to realize what it is that you are, to use our proverbial words, signing up for. When the preacher says, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, I will tell you sometimes it will be worse. Sometimes it will be poorer. And sometimes it will be in sickness. And you need to realize you're signing up for the long haul. You are making a commitment that is a lifelong commitment. But somebody says, but that's not necessarily what I want. And thus man seeks loopholes. So that he can be technically correct while he's violating the spirit of the law. There's so many people say, well, let's just see if we can't find another way around what the Lord has said. Let me give you an illustration of what happened with regards to the oaths. In Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say... Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it, and every, all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. You see, what they were trying to do was to have some sort of a childish-like loophole. I know as a child we'd say, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll trade pocket knives with you. You give me yours and I'll give you $5. And then the person say, yeah, I'll make that trade. And then you pull your finger out of your pocket. And you say, I have my fingers crossed. That means I don't have to do it. That's the same kind of... There's some people who have the idea, well, what we can do is we can find some sort of bypass around God's law. And that was the very purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Where people felt like you can say an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. 
But the Lord talks about hatred. You can say you can look but don't touch. The Lord talks about lust. And the very purpose on the Sermon on the Mount is to talk about what man is doing. Well, let me just briefly mention some loopholes. People who have this idea of just any cause. How do I know that view exists? Because that's what the Pharisees asked Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? You do know that exists in our society today. It's called a no-fault divorce. That nobody made any mistakes, nobody did anything wrong, we just don't like each other. There's this view that breaking the bonds frees both people. I remember hearing it years ago that is as if a man and a wife are handcuffed. And that if the wife can divorce the husband because he committed fornication, then that frees her to marry, but now he's unhooked and he can do whatever he wants to do. There's a lot of ridiculousness in that. But one that has been very um, prominent of recent years is people say, but doesn't baptism forgive every sin? And so I let's say, for instance, I've been divorced and I've remarried, been divorced and remarried, been divorced and remarried maybe three, four, five times, and now I want to become a Christian. So now I keep the wife that I've got and I just become a Christian and baptism just sort of takes care of everything. Well, let me illustrate it to you this way. You come to my house and you steal my lawnmower and you don't bring it back. Then you come to my house and you steal my lawn chair and you don't bring it back. And then finally you come to my house and you steal my truck and you don't bring it back. And then you come to church and you say, I want to be baptized. I want to be forgiven of all my sins. I want to stand right with God. Can you keep the lawnmower, the lawn chair, and the truck? And you say, no, you can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Because that's what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of conduct. And if I look back and I am sorry for what I've done wrong, I've got to, and we studied about this a couple of weeks ago, restore, make restitution. Do you remember what Peter said in that gospel sermon? Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 38. These people were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repentance has to precede that. So what if I choose? I'm not going to repent of all my sins. I'm just going to repent of the ones I don't want to keep. Will that baptism wash away those sins if a man won't repent of them? Another one says that if a person is not a child of God, he's not a Christian, he's not responsible to the law of God. He's not under it. And so he can do whatever he wants to until he becomes a Christian. That too is just an attempt to find a loophole. 
And then some say that the desertion of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is an additional one. The Lord used the phrase, whoever puts away his wife except for the cause of fornication. There's just one and only one rule. Now very quickly, I want to talk about some preventative measures. You know the best way to win an argument? I can tell you. Don't ever have the argument start with. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. It's like you're pouring out water and then you're trying to stop the water. You start an argument and sometimes you can't stop the argument. Well, Solomon says just don't start the argument to begin with. Do you want to know how to not have a divorce? Prevent it. Here's some things that you should think about as possible measures. First of all, put your spouse first. That's above your family. That's above your friends. That's above your parents. When you say that you are marrying that person, you're saying they are number one in your life. We talked about last week about what the Lord taught in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, where he talked about husbands loving your wives. Second of all, learn to show some affection. One of the greatest problems is, is that the Bible puts true affection within the marital bonds And sometimes there's no affection that is shown. Number three, learn to live within your means. I can't tell you how many times people have come and sat and said, we're having real big problems. Well, what are your problems? Is there some infidelity? that? No, no, that's not what it is. We're broken. We can't pay our bills. We try to outspend each other. We're spending a whole lot more money than we've got and, and we're in a miserable condition and we're fighting about that all the time. If you'll learn to spend and live within your means, you'll find that many of your marital disagreements will go away. Learn to compromise. There are things that are right and wrong. And there are things that are neither right nor wrong. They're matters of judgment. And sometimes one of us may prefer one and one may prefer another, but learn to compromise something that both of you can agree together on. Learn to communicate. Talk to each other. And to add with that, discuss and develop common goals. Where do you want to be? Some of you young couples, where do you want to be when your children graduate high school, go off to college, and now it's the two of you staring at each other? You may think that I am being a little bit overly dramatic here, but I'm going to tell you there's a lot of couples who don't know each other when their kids are grown because they've not discussed, they've not thought about their common goals of where they want to be and what they want to accomplish. And I'm just going to go ahead and add number seven. Do not marry somebody with a goal of reforming them. 
I've heard people say, well, once I marry them, I, I think they'll start coming to church. Once I marry them, I think they'll, they'll give up that filthy habit. No, usually that doesn't happen at all. Finally, be a faithful Christian. You know, one thing I've learned through life, there's only one person that I can control. Myself. But if I do what's right, that's already got the majority of everything else taken care of. Here's the problem. Divorce is all too common. And every time a divorce occurs, at least one person in that divorce is sin. And maybe both because God said, let not man put asunder, let not man separate. But I want to end with a thought that's a little bit disconcerting. When you go to the book of Jeremiah, there's a picture given there of Judah and Israel. And then I saw for all the causes that which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I put her away and had given her a certificate of divorce. Yet treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. God looked at Israel and said, You have violated our covenant. You have gone and played the harlot. And he says, I have divorced you. I have put you away. Now, here's the question for each of us individually. Is God ready to put you away because of the way you're living? Is God willing to say, you're not being faithful to me. You're you're being faithful to someone else or something else, but you're not being faithful to me. Here's the, here's the wonderful part. God is seeking reconciliation with us. His hand is extended toward us. God says, I want you back. The question is, how are we going to respond? This morning, if you are not a Christian, let me give you some hope and some encouragement. God's hand is stretched out toward you saying, I want you to be one of my children. I want your life to be better. I want you to spend eternity with me in heaven. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe in my son, Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God. I want you to repent of your sins, those things you've done that are wrong, that are contrary to my will. I want you to repent of those I want you to confess that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 8, verse 37. And then be baptized. That's to be immersed in water. Everything's ready for you this morning if you want to become a Christian. If you are a Christian and you're looking at your life and you're saying, I know one thing, it's not right now. You can come back and say, I want to be forgiven. And God graciously forgives. Are you washed in the blood? If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing?